Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to talk with a bunch of people involved with wines and winemaking and wine-blending and all a little different, yes. But they're all a little bit different. Right. So we're going to start off um, with Patrick Bennett and uh, his collection of wines. Uh, uh, we've talked you, about before, Vineyard's collection, but this vineyard, is... Vineyard Brands is the name vi- of it. Vineyard uh, Brands, but this is actually fortified wines. Yeah, some, something we we know a little bit about. We suspect that perhaps you don't know as much as you'd like, so here's a place to go to school on Port, Madeira, and things of that ilk. And oh, then we're going on to a, a man who doesn't even grow grapes but makes wine and yes, we'll explain how he, how he does that yep. and then finally a, a tribute to the go- the golden state of California which is celebrated for lots of things including the fine food that's on the table so there you go that's what we got for today's program and let's start out with Patrick Bennett of Vineyard Brands on Fortified Wines Okay, I'm not going to sing, but I am going to remind people of the existence of a comedy duo called Michael Flanders and Donald Swan, who were enormously successful players in the West End of London, and one of their contributions to their program was a song called Have Some Madeira, Madeira. It's so so much nicer than beer. And it it got me thinking when the gentleman who's on the other end of the line when his organization got in got in touch with us and said Patrick Bennett. Yeah, Patrick Bennett, yeah. A a vineyard brands. A vineyard brands. But somebody from Vineyard Brands said, Would you like to try some? And I said, Sure, why not? Because I think a, a lot of people in these United States now don't understand what a fortified wine is, what Madeira is, what port is. They probably never drank them. So yeah. Patrick, you're you're appointed to clear up the confusion. Great, I'm happy to do so. Go ahead. So, um, a fortified wine, by definition, is a wine to which alcohol has been added. Generally speaking, the alcohol is added at some point during fermentation. And as you know, and as your your listeners know, fermentation is the process whereby yeast convert sugar in grapes into alcohol. So you fortify uh, by adding neutral grape spirit, so basically unaged brandy to the fermenting wine, and you create a wine uh, of higher alcohol. So now if a normal table wine is 12 to 14%, you create a wine that's about 18%, and you also create a wine that has some unfermented sugars remaining, so they're often sweet. They can be dry. Um, so in the case of uh, Madeira, there's a dry style called Cercial, or there's a really sweet style called Gual or Malmzi. Uh, to make it dry, you would let the wine ferment almost to dryness before fortification. To make it sweet, you would ferment, uh, you would fortify early in the fermentation process to leave a lot of unfermented sugars. Now, what, was, there, um, was there a reason people did that? I mean, did they dislike sweet things? Or was it to do... So with historically, England was really responsible for most of the fortified wine culture in the world. When they were a seafaring power, they would oftentimes ship um, beverages or wines around the world, and during these long journeys, well before refrigeration, the wines had a tendency to spoil. So they started fortifying them because alcohol was a preservative. Also, the fortification process oftentimes resulted in sweet wines, and at the time, sugar was a really valuable commodity, so the idea of a sweet, really rich, fruity wine was very attractive. Um, so the island of Madeira 
is a, a region that produces fortified wines. Uh, the Douro Valley in Portugal produces port wine. Now they were, they were they were already a style of fortified wine as well. They were already okay. doing this, right? They were already doing this before the discovery. I mean, the the local people were doing it before the British discovered it. All right, so it's an interesting question. There's a lot of controversy as to the actual origin of the fortification in the Douro. Basically, the region of Aquitaine, which was, is where Bordeaux was, was historically owned by the British. So the British shipped a lot of Bordeaux from the port city of Bordeaux to London. After the, the region of Aquitaine was lost to the British, they went basically, they outsourced uh, wine production to the Douro. The wine wouldn't survive the journey, however, so the fortification process essentially became a standardized process that was adopted at that time. They don't know if the Portuguese were, in fact, fortifying it before that became a necessity as far as just lo- the logistics of the transportation of the wine. Okay, so people, so, people just don't, don't don't know the origin that, that well. Yeah, I read a number of books, and some say it was kind of like a local tradition that predated the English, and others say the English started the process and invented the process. In either case, the English really commercialized the process and standardized the process and created the idea of port as we know it today. Okay. Now, now the idea of Marsala wine has a slightly different history. I, I don't know if you're as familiar with it since, since that's not part of your portfolio. But no, I'd love to hear it if you know. Though. The story there is that uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, it was, it was difficult because Spain became an ally of France and, under Napoleon. And that's where the, all the that's where all the sherry came from. Yes. So, Admiral Lord Nelson, who at the time was shacked up with Lady Hamilton in Naples as headquarters of his fleet, discovered that they were making a fortified wine in Masala. So he said, "Okay, well, it's not as good as sherry, but it'll it'll do in a it'll do in a pinch." <laughs> so, so the Masala spark um, fortified wine trade started then in the Napoleonic Wars around the end of the 18th century. I've never heard that story before, but I, I definitely believe it. A lot of it was just necessity. Now, now, the drink, the drinking of port in particular became quite a habit. And I was telling, I was telling Patrick before we, sweetheart, before we came on the air, that the famous Prime Minister, British, British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, who was Prime Minister for the second longest time of any Prime Minister, and the youngest ever to serve in that position, but he had a three bottle a day port habit, and and his port. I don't port- know how you could drink three bottles. Well, I, I, I'm with you, and I don't know how you could drink three bottles <laughs> a port a day. Well, we we tr- we tr- we put in a valiant effort. We did <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with the with the bottles that that she sent that you sent us. Great, but he well, thank you very much for uh, for putting in the, the effort. How did you make out? But he, but, but he, he you're, died. You're, you're still with us, so yeah, we couldn't still, have gone too badly. We're still, the, we're still there. So, so let's dig, let's dig a little deeper then into, okay. into the, into the world of. You, you mentioned Madeira just a little bit ago, and th- yes. th- there's another Madeira that you sent us called Rainwater. Yes, and yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I think Rainwater is, is classed as a dry Madeira too, right? It is. It's a dry Madeira, often uh, not aged. More than three to five years. And the legend, the, the historical legend of rainwater is that four, they would bottle on site. They would, they would ship in cask. So they would ship the Madeira to the ports where it was to be, um, received. And then they would bottle it there oftentimes and then ship it around, around the country. So 
at the time the Madeiras were shipping from the island of Madeira off the coast of North Africa to the U.S., to ports like Charleston, um, New Orleans, Boston, New York. Apparently, they would ship the, uh, they would float the casks half full with Madeira to the boats so that they would float, and they would finish filling them on the boat, and then send the empty casks back to shore to be refilled. Oh, that's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, it makes sense logically. Like, it makes sense just from a, a, a ease of labor kind of um, vantage point. Some of the dock workers, the r- rumor has it, left some of the half-filled casks uncovered on the dock, and it rained overnight. And the next day, the rainwater had diluted and lightened the Madeira in the cask. Upon tasting, some of the Madeira producers said the style was really um, enjoyable. It was kind of a lighter, more aperitif-appropriate style. And then they kind of purposefully created Madeira in this style. Now, most of that Madeira was destined for the U.S. at the time, and the U.S. continues to be the largest market for the rainwater style of Madeira. Wow. Okay, now let's let's put a dot on the map for me, because they, you said the island of Madeira is is off the coast of Africa, but it's actually, yes. but it's actually owned and controlled by the Kingdom of Portugal. Correct? Yes, correct, yes. It's off the coast of Morocco, in fact. As, yeah. as, as opposed to the other islands, the Canary Islands, which are close by down in that general area, but they are controlled by Spain. Yes, yep, you got it. Okay, well now let's, let's, let's take port. port. Okay. Port, probably more widely known around the world, but still not, not very well known. And among the Batu centers, there were three different styles. Yes. White, white, tawny, and ruby. Yes, perfect. Tell, tell us the difference. So, um, white port is kind of almost an anomaly. Um, it's really only a small fraction of all the port that's uh, produced and consumed. In Portugal, in Lisbon, in Oporto, consumed as an aperitif before dinner with tonic. So you would have uh, a white port and tonic with some ice um, and a slice of lemon or a slice of um, orange. It's made from white grapes, and basically it's made in the same manner as red port, but uh, in just a significantly um, smaller amount. Um, and it tends to be slightly off-dry, so the tonic kind of gives you a little cut of bitterness to, to counterbalance the sweetness. I love it. I think it's delicious. Um, but most Americans have never seen nor had it unless they've been to Portugal. Yeah, I, I think it's a category that's really, it's a really aperitif, like a summer aperitif, perfect beverage. Yeah, we we were actually introduced to us, to us by by a friend called Tony Pies, who's a restaurateur here in Pittsburgh. A chef. Who, a chef. Well, he's a restaurateur too, I guess. Yeah. Chef restaurateur. And a chef. And he was born and raised in Portugal. And came, came ah, here. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he came here on a cruise ship or something like that. He did. And uh, and and st- stayed on and eventually had some very successful restaurant ventures. But but he was very fond of white port as an aperitif, just as just as you described it just now. Yeah, but he also Great. did he did Portuguese wine dinners. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but I'm just saying that's how we got to know. Yeah. That's how we got to know about yeah, it. Yeah, that's usually it's usually um, either a visit to Portugal or um, someone from Portugal that introduces most Americans to it because it's not something that's really common in this country. But once you've had it, you know it's a really kind of um, addictive summer drink. It's lighter than a gin and tonic. So you know if you come home from work. At five o'clock, and you haven't eaten since lunch, and you have a gin and tonic, you get a little loopy. You can have a white port tonic with some olives or some almonds, and it's a really uh, a nice kind of European style lower alcohol aperitif. 
Okay, now, no, no, before, before we go on to the next two, uh, let's remind people the distinction that white port is made from white grapes, when, whereas you tend to think of port always being red, that it would be made from red grapes. Is port actually made from red grapes? It is, in fact, yes. Um, so classically in, the, in the, the literature, there's five traditional port grapes. But in fact, when you're there and you're, when you're walking the vineyards and talking to the vineyard, there's over 30 different indigenous local grapes. Many of the vineyards, the older vineyards, are co-planted, they're co-harvested, they're co-fermented, um, and they kind of streamline it to five grapes because it's kind of easier for uh, people to digest mentally. But in fact, there's a really um, rich indigenous grape culture in the Douro, um, and many ports are made from those. Younger uh, vineyards that have been planted more recently tend to be planted um, varietally and with those five um, specifically. Now, are, they, are, the, are those grapes, are these red grapes, are they also red wine grapes or are they specialized to be made into port? Oh, they're local grapes, uh, indigenous grapes. They make, some of them make fantastic um, red wines. As an example, Torico Nacional, which is kind of the, the one of the darling uh, grapes of the five main, um, you're seeing a lot of dry Douro table wines made either exclusively from that grape or um, that grape is the base of a Douro red blend. Um, so they lend themselves to really nice, full-bodied, dry red. Think uh, one end of the spectrum thing, Napa Cab, um, not quite as rich and sweet and sappy, nor oftentimes as heavily oaked, but they could be produced in that style. Or um, on the other end of the spectrum, almost like a more Bordelais style, um, dark black fruit, um, very dry. You get a, you know a lot of minerality from the schist soil that the Douro is known for. Um, that's one thing, if we're going to talk about the Douro, that we should probably talk about. Um, the schist soil, which uh, composes much of the middle and lower, lower Douro, gives you a lot of um, kind of tension and energy and minerality to the wines, which is one of the reasons the fortified wines from this region are so popular, so uh, valuable, so delicious, because even the, the, their sweets, they still have really bright acid and bright minerality to counterbalance that sweetness. Now let's just pop something in there because just 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 as a way of educating our listeners even further, because if they happen to get to to, to the town of Oporto, they could actually venture further up the river and finish up in Spain and finish up yeah, in a, yeah, exactly. finish, finish up in a fine red wine growing region of of Spain south of the Rioja, uh, yep. which which is increasingly celebrated for its red table wines as well. Yeah, the river stretched all the way from the coast, all the way into... Okay, now, so the, dis- so the distinction between the different ports, we've got, we've got ruby and... Re- and White. No, no. The- and, and tawny. And, and tawny. Those would be the, the two major categories. You know, white port, um, as delicious as it is, is, again, a, a small um, fraction of the port that's produced, and it's more of kind of a, an interesting anomaly. But the main style are uh, the whites and the rubies. I, um, vintage, vintage character, or LBV, which is late bottle vintage, in that ruby category. Okay. So the ruby ports um, show more red wine and fruit-specific flavors, as opposed to the tawny ports, 
which show more oxidative flavors. So basically, um, the tawny ports spend their entire lives aging in large wooden vats in the lodges in uh, Villanova de Gaia, across the river from the city of Oporto. And over the years, and we're talking anywhere from 10 to 20, 30 to 40 years, over the years, the interaction with oxygen and wood causes the red wine character to kind of soften and mellow. It causes the color to shift from a dark, inky, purple, red to a light, tawny brown. And it develops flavors um, like caramel, like almond, like toffee. Um, so really flavors that are a result of the wine's interaction with oxygen. It's a really pretty style um, that in much of Europe is consumed uh, as an aperitif, but in the U.S. is oftentimes consumed as a dessert wine. Okay, now now, now you've, you've done such a wonderful job. We're going to allow you now to do just a little bit of a commercial. <laughs> and, but, but it's a commercial, a number of the port lines you carry. Well, you have to- oh, yes. Well, the Simington family, who is the largest uh, vineyard-holding family in the Douro, um, they own a number of different port houses. Right, right. Um, one of them is Wars, and Wars is the port house that Vineyard Brands, the company that I work for, um, Wars is imported and uh basically sold in multiple states by vineyard brands. Got it, got it. But you don't know about the Symington family? Oh, no, I do. I, knew, I know much about it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, the Symington family is a historically important family in uh, the Douro Valley in the city of Oporto um, in that they're probably the largest producer of port under the, the multiple... Um, the, the famous Burgundy fine wine houses of the Bordeaux area were all for sale in the 1930s, and one of yes. and one of them was bought by an American family, which continues. Are you talking about Opai? I, I can't remember the name of which house. I, I, I know you were going to ask me, and I can't. Chateau Aubryon. Chateau Aubryon. Ah, Chateau ah, Aubryon. He's, he's, he's owned by the by the Dillons, so maybe they maybe have friends called the Symingtons. <laughs> <laughs> Entirely possible. Uh, you know? So, but your connection to uh, fortified wines centers only in Portugal, because I asked right away uh, about um, the uh, sherry if you were doing fortified wines, and of course that's Spain and this whole other category of, of fortified yes, yes, wines. Yeah. So no, I, I love sherry. I love to drink sherry. Uh, I've been to the region, Jerez, where they make sherry. Um, but as far as uh, representing it, our, our company doesn't have any sherry in our portfolio, which is kind of unfortunate for me because I would love to drink some. But yeah. um, there's an annual event in New York called Sherry Fest. Well, a semi-annual event in New York called Sherry Fest. So I get to get my sherry fix uh, mm-hmm. when I go to that. Now, what's the, the related um, fortified wine from this? We went to South, South oh, Spain. Oh, it's uh, Pedro Jimenez. Pedro Jimenez. PX. Oh, yeah, it's a very rich style. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, which they served. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a sweet person. You know, they served it, uh, paired it with every course of lunch. I thought I was going to die. And they started <laughs> out. They oh, they started out, however, with a beer. Yeah, this this is okay. this is this is your tip. Our host, who was a guy in your kind of position with with this company, and he said if he was going to do any heavy drinking of of wine, he always had a beer first. So I had a, so I had a beer so I had a beer first as well. a very European tradition to me. I was not driving, so 
<laughs> well, one, one more one more story for you that you, that you might en- enjoy. If you ever wondered why PX Pedro Jimenez wine got its name, I think it's named after the grape Pedro Jimenez, but but I don't know where the grape well, the, came from. The grape cuttings came from Germany in the, in the really, yeah? in the in the suitcase of a German mercenary who was coming to help the King of Spain boot the Moors out of Spain. <laughs> wow. And his, name was. his name was Peter Siemens. <laughs> and and, and nobody, nobody in Spain could pronounce that. <laughs> so it became so it Pedro, became Pedro Jimenez. Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> and, you, and you learn a little something every day. It's been so much, it's been so much fun talking to you, oh, young Patrick, man. Yeah. Thank Likewise. you. Likewise. Thank I you. I feel like we would do well if we were not drinking together. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you so well, much. I'll come to Pittsburgh often, so we can certainly change that. Well, 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 you, you, check in, check you, in with us. Yeah, you better be, better be in touch. And thank you so much for your, con- thank you very much to your, your contribution to the education of our listeners. They should learn Absolutely. something My every day like this. Thanks a lot. Bye, Patrick. Well. Bye-bye. So, so we hope that you understand the world, world of fortified wines a little better now than you did when you started. Yeah, well, I mean, I always like to learn about that. There you go. And we'll, we'll have a, another man with a different take on wines coming right after the break. So don't go. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Our next guest, Cameron Hughes, is from a profession in the United States at least, a, a fairly odd duck. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very common in France, certainly. That's where the idea comes from. And the name, Negociant. Right. And didn't we have fun talking to Cameron Hughes? We, so we did, much because he's, he's, he's a lot of fun. Hey. In, in a way, in a way he's, he sort of half invented this whole genre, I think. In, in the United States, and uh, it's it, it's very entertaining, and it produces, interestingly enough, some real really valuable wines at just the right price. And and just admitted something. She said, "I talk a lot." <laughs> but, but, so we had two admissions here, but, but, and but, I, I, you're opening up to me. But every every now and then. I get a I get a chance to introduce an interesting guest, and quite often when I do that, it happens that the subject is wine. Now, <laughs> now I have no idea what Anne is thinking of when she assigns all these to me, but I got another one today. An interesting story. Cameron Hughes, first of all, welcome to On the Menu Radio. We're delighted to have you join us today. I'm delighted to be here. Now, what what I want you to do before before we talk about the wonderful wines which we acquired and drank altogether too quickly. Behind that is is a, is a model for the way you chose to get into the wine business. Perhaps you can explain first of all the model, and then, or you can start by saying why why did you get into the wine business in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I kind of fell into the wine business. I was actually an English and philosophy major at the University of Colorado Boulder. I graduated, and um, you know, as a philosophy and English major, pretty unemployable. So uh, I kind of stumbled about for a couple of years after the business. I have, or to, after having, I have to interrupt and I'll say that the bulk, <laughs> the bulk of our uh, long ago gone 
um, blind wine tasting club was made of philosophy professors and students. <laughs> That's see, and uh, we understand these things. We get wine. We grok it at a whole other level, right? Yeah. You know, I, I fell into the business. My father had been working for a, a company called the Wine Group, and uh, I had always loved wine and enjoyed it. And he offered me a part-time job. Uh, which turned into a full-time job, which turned into me traveling around the country working for the wine group and continuing to hone my palate. Um, I had a girlfriend who lived in Sonoma, and we'd spend every weekend in Napa and <laughs> Sonoma. I had a 35 to 40% intra-winery discount, which doesn't exist anymore, but it did back then. Oh, wow. And uh, so I built quite a cellar because you could go to Chateau St. Jean and buy the 1991 Reserve by the case for 40% off. Wow. And uh, so That was the one that won Wine Spectator Wine of the yeah, right? I, it could have, yeah, something I like I don't so. actually remember that. Uh, you, wow, that's amazing, Peter, that you remember that. He remembers um, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I got, I worked for this company for a long time, and then I helped, I left and helped start up a couple import companies. I learned about the French negotiant business, where uh, the owner of the company I was working for, the import piece of it, uh, would put his own blends together and get them bottled up with his label on it. Uh, and we would import them and sell them or not sell them in this case because they went out of business after about a year. But I had learned enough to be dangerous. So I, that wine collection I mentioned a minute ago, I actually sold that on winebid.com, which is like the first wine auction site. Wow. And I bought 500 cases of Napa Cab with a, a fun label on it, which I called Synergy, C-I-N-E-R-G-I. And it was a, um, a blend that I had put together of quote-unquote bulk wine. So uh, there exists this huge bulk wine market, and there's millions of gallons of wine bought, sold, traded each year between companies. Uh, and then there are guys like me, Negotians, who I, you know, there are other, there's different facets of it, but what I do, I look for the best of the best. The needle in a haystack, uh, I only work with high-end wineries and high-end wine producers, and they sell wine to me that I bottle under my own label. And uh, we started with the Synergy label, which was all funky red table wine blends, but I was 15 years ahead of my time back then. Uh-huh. Now, you know, red wine blend category is like 30% of the red wine category. It's, it's phenomenal. It's huge. Now, let's, uh, let's, but, Cameron, let's, yeah. let's go back a second and make this clear. What, what, what you're doing, you're buying, you're trading in wine. You're not trading in grapes. You're trading in wine. Correct. So, I'm buying finished, fermented Okay. Barrel-aged, in most instances, okay. wines, uh, 500 to 5,000 gallons. And then we uh, we pick them up in a tanker truck, and we bring them to our facility, and uh, we finalize blend. Oftentimes, um, they're very, very minor tweaks, 1%, 2% here or there, and we bottle the wine up. We really believe that the wine should reflect where they come from. And because we're working and almost always buying wines from a state-controlled property, then, you know, we really want these wines to reflect where they come from and, and have their own unique voice and of uh, quote-unquote terroir. And I say quote-unquote because I don't think anyone... The, the harder you try to define terroir, uh, or the more you try to define it, the harder it is. It's one of those it, it, squirty we, concepts, right? We just, we just interviewed Alice Firing about her uh, new book, which says it's all about dirt. Yeah. The, the Dirty Wild Guide. That's her new book. <laughs> no, no. It is. It is. It's about soil health. And I think, actually, I think uh, Americans as a populace are about to get a big, big education on soil health. Uh, because it massively matters in this fight against climate change. And it's one of the things that we need as a country to do is regenerate the health of the soil structures uh, under our feet. 
interest. Now let's let's go back a second. Now you will actually go out to the to people that you know, or perhaps people that you just are about to get to know, and you and you taste the wine after they've vinified it before you decide that you want to buy some of it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, okay. uh, you know, we work with brokers. We work directly with wineries. And, uh, you know, at any given tasting, there's, you know, any 20 to 40 wines. Sometimes we'll have 50 to 60 wines, like last Friday. And uh, we go through, and uh, maybe two or three of those wines will stand out, and they'll move to uh, a process where we try to acquire them. And sometimes imagine. we win, sometimes we lose. I can't imagine how after 50 wines you don't have palate fatigue. Oh, you do. <laughs> and that's why you come back and you taste them again the following day. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you, it's really about, at that point we call it triage. And you're, you're, you're picking the four or five that you want to revisit the next day, see how they evolve. And sometimes I'll watch them over a couple of days. And then, you know, of course we have, you know, we send samples up to the lab. We get everything labbed. We get a kind of a fingerprint of that wine so we know that when we receive that wine, it's the wine that we bought. Uh Uh, We've had had some issues (laughs) before. I I bet you have. (laughs) This is why we always demand samples, you know, because not not that we're greedy and want things for free, but we've had some real bad tricks played on us with what they describe and what what Mm. it actually is. Yeah. Right, right. You're probably familiar with a book called The Billionaire's Vinegar. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, we interviewed the guy who wrote that book. Yeah, that was funny. Mm-hmm. He, he also, interestingly enough, and I don't know if you know this particular mini factoid, but he was the only journalist in attendance at the France versus oh, yeah, California wine event, the, the, right. ta- the taste off. Yes, I was aware of that actually. Yeah, and, and, and I read the book, and I uh, I think there was a movie made of it, uh, but I don't no, think no, I read no, that one. I watched no, that one. No, yeah. There was a movie made of it, and it, yeah. wasn't, it, was, it wasn't that good a movie. Yeah, I yeah, okay. It. <laughs> it, 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 it was a good story. Yeah. Mean, it, it was really a splendid story, and, and and great recognition for California. I mean, it's it's one of the things that propelled California several steps up the up the ladder of world wine-producing countries. There's really no question about that. Certainly. And, you know, I should also caveat my previous statement where we've had people uh, try and dupe us. That was actually uh, from offshore. So it was, we've never had an issue uh, with folks here uh, in the United States. Oh, great. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll receive a wine and you go, listen, this doesn't quite match up. And you realize somebody made a mistake, pulled the wrong tank, right, or put the wrong barrel blend together. And sometimes they can make up for it and go, oops, we made a mistake. Or sometimes like, well, it looks like the sample you got actually wasn't representative out of the gate, so we're just going to drop the deal, right? Now, uh-huh. will, will your blend, for example, the Meritage, which is one of mm-hmm. the one of the wines we we just enjoyed just a few days ago, we we have a group who goes out dining, and and if I'm being really thoughtful. I will, I will take what I consider to be a really good bottle as, as opposed <laughs> to the relatively bad bottles that say sometimes bring. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, if you find something nice, you want to, you want to share it. Now, did, did that wine, did the constituent blends all come from the same winery or do you mix and match? No, that one was all estate fruit from one winery. The blend was pre-assembled. It's out of one of their high-end programs. And um, it's a blend of uh, about 75% Oakville fruit and 25% Mount Veter fruit. And then it's um, this cab. You know, it's kind of a um, a Bordeaux blend, 
I think it was like 31% Cabernet, somewhere in that range. But uh, that was, yeah, 39 Cab, 32 Cab Franc, 26% Petit Verdot, and 2% Merlot, 1% Malbec. So okay. traditional Bordeaux blend. And you're sworn to secrecy as to whose wine that is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a very, very high-end producer. But, I can but, tell but, you that. But it's, but uh, you know, they're right off the trail on, in Oakville, right off the, uh, <laughs> well, the Silverado Trail. Well, we're so. not going to say who it is. Huh? No, we're not going to say who it is. But, you know, uh, listen, there's, uh, there are no pigs in that poke, right? Uh, there's, you know, <laughs> no, but, there's a, a, a lot of fantastic producers along there, for sure. I think it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of obvious that if you, gave, if you gave the secret away, some, some, somehow or other, People wouldn't, all of a sudden, people wouldn't sell you their wine anymore. No, that's quite true. Uh, and a lot of folks are very, very judicious about that. You know, we've got to sign non-disclosure agreements, et cetera. Sure, sure. But most folks, they get it. They know that we keep our mouths shut about where we get the wines, and yeah. uh, we've never, ever once had an issue. I, I do recall, we did have a special program once where we bought uh, a vertical of Shiner, so 2006 through 2011, and it was all high-end Cabernet Sauvignons from a very high-end producer in Napa Valley. And I told them, because we have to, they have to, because they bottled the wines, they have to file the certificate of label approval yeah, right. with the government. Which is what a shiner is. You might yeah, so a shiner is a bottle of wine that's already in, in the bottle, right? right? Or yeah. a, a wine already bottled up, and it just doesn't right. have a label on it. And, uh, they insisted on filing the certificate of label approval under their name instead of setting up what we call a DBA or doing business as. Right. Uh, and sure enough, you know, somebody went on the internet and figured out who it was and posted it on a bulletin board and, uh, uh, they were, uh, you know, then they went out and, and, and said some things that they probably shouldn't have said uh-huh. to kind of deflect it all. Uh, and, uh, but, it got a little messy. Now, you, you know the people from Cone Winery, right? Oh, that's a funny story. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I do remember. B.R. Cone? Yes. B.R. Cone. B.R. Sure. Cone. And, and his, he his, does a story. His son, his son was most active by the, Dan. Time, by the time we met him. And yeah. uh, we, did, we did an interview with, with him and three other top winemakers. At Nem- was it Nemecorn Woodlands? And we we asked him to tell us an interesting story. So he told us an interesting story of, of how his his father got into the real wine business, because apparently Bruce used to sell everything he made to August Sebastiani uh-huh. for for him to vinify and sell. And somebody said to him once, "Why don't you make a wine of your own?" And he said, "But if I, but if I do that, August will get mad at me and he won't buy my grapes anymore." <laughs> Yeah, it's a chicken and egg problem. So this isn't person it? said back to him, he said, don't worry. He said, August goes to bed early. So, 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 so wait, so wait till after dark and then send a tractor, send a tractor truck with all your grapes and we'll, and we'll make some Oakville wine. And that, that's, that's how, that's how, the, the, that's how the first BR cone Oakville blend got its, got its start. Oh, that's funny. Of course, I'm, Dan, Dan's a great character too. Oh, sure. He is. Uh, a good friend of mine, and um, and I'll bet I'll bet he's got even more stories about his, his father, as you can imagine. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he does it. Have you ever gone to that music festival that they do? They still do that. The one in October. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, in it? fact, they've just added at Br Cone some additional. Um, you know, they used to do a lot with the Doobie Brothers, but they yeah. now have um, something that's uh, much bigger. Uh, they built a new amphitheater back oh, there. Wow. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, it's, we were it's on a the lawn, fantastic. I think. 
Yeah, you should see it now. It's a whole new world. And uh, the guy who was the front singer for, for, his, for the group that he managed, Doobie, the, the Brothers. Doobie Brothers, well, Michael McDonald came back and did the concert the year that we were there. Ah, uh, I love that guy's although, voice. Although, wow. Although he had left the band. Yeah. Here's, an, yeah. here's another interesting tidbit for you, although you probably know this one. It goes along with the story, how do you get two, how do you make two million dollars in the wine business? And the answer is you start with five. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we always, I tell that story all the time. How do you make a small fortune in the wine business? You start with a large one. Yeah. Well, well, just, just up the, just up the road from B.R. Cohn is a lovely boutique winery called Landmark. Yes. You probably, you probably know them. They make a beautiful Pinot Noir and a beautiful Chardonnay. Correct. Well, guess what the last name is of the lady who run, who ran it until they sold it. Mm, don't know. Deer. D-E-E-R-E. They make green tractors on the side. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there is a lot of, uh, Disposable capital invested into the wine yeah. business. Well, you uh, it's a sexy these, business, right? Yeah, but the, I mean, we've gone some, um, like, we, we were, and where was that, where was it? Well, we met all the interesting people, the retired quarterback and the... Oh, that was Paso Robles. Paso Robles. Paso Robles. The, uh, the Roanrod Rangers. The, 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 the guy, they called themselves the Roan Rangers. But, I mean, oh, they, sure. they had a party with four winemakers and... and hosted this party that they gave for us and we did a, a, a round the table interview and each one was different and each one was a character and it was so much fun and it was always a second career it wasn't a first career yeah um, that's wonderful yeah, there were a couple of hospital administrators yeah there yeah was, there was one guy who was from bordeaux but he came to america so he could make wines the way he wanted to exactly then there was mm -hmm. a, then there was a retired linebacker from the new orleans saints Oh yeah. wow! The, the, and, and then and then the guy who runs Tablets Creek. Yeah, that was a group. I'll tell you. That is a crew for sure. Yeah, it was it was hard to keep him under control. I can tell you. But anyway, <laughs> let, <laughs> let, let's go back now with all this background. Let's go back now to wines our listeners can buy. Mm -hmm. So let's so let's assume that we've convinced them that they might be able to get a bargain here. They might be able to get wines in that wonderful sweet spot between 15 and $25, that is certainly the wine I seek to drink every day. Yeah. And I, th and I think a lot of people do the same. So what, 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 have, you, what have you got for them, Cameron? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, the list is endless. Um, you know, we really we have uh, breadth and depth of the program we source out of Europe. Uh, so we, I have Barolo and Barbaresco DOCG Reservas uh, coming over here shortly. We're buying some beautiful white wine out of Gavi. Uh, so just to give you an idea, right, of the different, uh, items that we have. Of course, we specialize in Napa Valley Cabernet, uh, and right now I am having a field day. Uh, though I have to say, there's, um, some challenges because of the fires in 2007, or oh, 2017, yes. yeah, right? Right, right? And, uh, we're seeing wines that are beautiful and spectacular, but you just get a hint of, uh, the, almost like a barbecued meat or ash. Really? Sometimes it's an ash note, yeah. Some of them, it's just too bad, and, and you know, obviously we're not we're not purchasing those. Uh, but there was some really fantastic wine that um, still got hit. Uh, but of course, there's there's a lot more <laughs> stuff that did not. We, we, uh, went, but, we went we went to a vineyard in Western Australia, which had been the victim of a fire. Yeah, what was that? I can't remember the name of it now. He, he was a guy, and he had founded it in his retirement. A lot of a lot of people open wineries when they retire, I guess. 
Mm. But 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 he he had a a, a bushfire tainted mm-hmm. vintage, and he just threw it away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have insurance for that. Uh, there's just not a lot you can do. Uh, and we don't know the, uh, the knock-on effects and how they perform in the bottle, uh, oh, very well. Right. So there, you know, it has to do with how the alcohol and the sugar, uh, come together later on and they can volatize these components or they can keep them well wrapped in the fruit and it cannot be a problem. We just don't know. Uh, so, you know, we're being obviously very cautious about that. But there's a lot of fantastic uh, Napa Cabernets for us to buy right now mm-hmm. and um, lots of producers uh, because we've had, you know, many, many large harvests in a row, very high quality. And uh, I think Napa's hit a bit of a price ceiling probably. Mm-hmm. And so there's plenty of folks that are saying, mm, you know, we probably have, you know, 500 to 1,000 cases more wine than we need out of this vintage. Uh, and uh, so they'll come to us. And um, uh, we've got... Quite a few awesome Napa Valley Reds coming down the pike. The best way for consumers, by the way, to follow this program is to go to our website, chwine.com, sign up for the email alerts, and then we'll let you know. Some wines, you know, we'll have four months, right, where we've got a couple thousand cases worth. Some wines will go, if we've got three, four hundred cases, they'll go in a couple days, right? So the best way to track the program. So right now on the website, we've got Red Hills Petite Sra from Lake County. We've got Arroyo Seco Pinot Noirs. We have another Santa Inez Valley Meritage. Uh, we've got Rutherford Cabernets, Sonoma Valley Cabernets. Uh, you know, we've got uh, wines from Oregon. So we have Chardonnay. We have Pinot Noir from Willamette, uh, Shehala Mountain. Uh, AVA as well. Uh, I mean, you name it, we've got a fantastic portfolio. Uh, Washington State Red, so Walla Walla Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, We even have a Lagrine from St. Helena Appalachian of Napa Valley. Now, who's got that? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever tasted <laughs> now, it. Do they, do they all go under the, where does 671 come in? Yeah, so the lot number. So we started okay. with lot number one. And the whole idea with the lot program was how do we, the, you know, the in and out nature of the program, you know, the one wine is here today and gone in a couple of weeks. You need a more dynamic labeling structure than, you know, your traditional vintage, varietal, and appellation. So we came up with the lot program as a way, okay, lot number one is going to be 1,800 cases of Lodi Syrah. Lot two was 800 cases of Dry Creek Zinfandel. Lot three was 2,700 cases of Lake County Petite Syrah, and so on and so forth. And uh, we're going to be up to lot 700 this year. So we do about 50 wines a year on average. Now, I have a stupid question. Why is it, you sort of hinted at this, uh, enough is enough kind of on the winemaker. He produced all this juice and and um he's he's bottled it and he has enough to sell it, it, kind of his shopping cart is full mm-hmm. is that why they they i'm assuming that you get a big discount when you buy it from what they would get on the regular market yeah sure why so, do they sell it to you yeah it's a question. great question yeah so right now folks are selling inventory largely because they have uh, too much, right? Yeah. We, you know, it's an it's an agricultural product, and we've had many many big harvests in a row that have been very healthy size, healthy quality. So folks just go, you know, we've got to maintain our balance sheets correctly. And then you have wines that just don't hit the hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollar Cabernet mark, 
right? And, uh, or, uh, and, you know, they make a fantastic $25 to $30 Napa Cabernet, but they just don't, you know, it's just not $150 quality. Mm -hmm. So we will buy those and we will blend them out how we see fit. And, um, oftentimes, um, it, Almost every time we're improving that wine, right? And then you will have components that didn't fit into the blend. Petite Syrah, sorry, Petite Verdot, Malbec, uh, even other lots of Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, winemakers will use four or five different types of French oak barrel from different forests in France to influence the wine in different directions. At the end of the day, they have an, uh, you know, an artist palette of different flavors to work from. And they may just decide, you know what, these other ten barrels, of Cabernet Sauvignon don't really work in this particular blend, so we're going to sell these off. Uh, we'll look at that wine and go, oh, wow, that's fantastic uh, by itself. It could need uh, needs a little bit of Merlot to round it out, oh, wow. and then we've got a fantastic bottle of wine here. And so that's what we do. It sounds like fun, Cameron. It, it is. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. It's such a thrill. I mean, it could be a slog some days when you go through those 50 wines and you're like, you've oh, got God, nothing yeah. to show at the end of it. <laughs> it's like, because it's a thrill of the hunt. That's what I love about it, right? Yeah. But you're, li- you're, living your, you're living your dream in a way. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You guys should come up and visit someday, and we'll uh, slog through some wines together. Where are you? We can we can handle that. Yeah, I'm up in San Francisco. In San Francisco. In, in San Francisco, in the city, or in the... You're not, you're not actually... Yeah, our office is uh, Petrero Hill. Okay. And um, I'm also... Uh, I'm a bit of a meat slinger these days, actually. I have a, another company that I started called HolyGrailSteak.com, and we have a tremendous portfolio of very, very high-end beef. So Japanese Wagyu, American-raised Wagyu. We've got some of the best USDA prime Angus you'll ever eat. And um, we can cook some steaks up and taste some wine. I'm, I'm, drool- I'm drooling. <laughs> <laughs> um, Have you ever had real Kobe from Japan? We, we actually we have. We have to have well, the nose print. Okay. The nose print. Yeah. On the- uh, yes, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. I am I'm the only source of real genuine Kobe beef for probably 99.999% of the American populace really? just simply because yeah uh, you know the Kobe you see out there on menus there's that only 30 restaurants that are certified to sell it right? right most of it is is mislabeled and that's being very generous on my part mm-hmm. uh, we're the only online source for genuine Kobe beef from Japan yeah. I just saw a beautiful uh, Kobe steak supposedly named that um, on um, uh, the Regalis new catalog. Do you ever see that, the Regalis Foods? Yes, Regalis down in Texas, right? No, they're in Chicago, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. Regalis. I think they're in Chicago. I, uh, okay, I'm familiar with the name Regalis. I just, uh, for some they reason, I was associated with Texas. You know, they have a couple of different names. I, okay. It's kind of a peculiar business. I'm not sure I you know, understand what do the they whole do? thing. What uh, do they do? They're importers. And they're per- yes, per- right, okay, yeah. Per- yeah, they're really importers. Obs- really obscure stuff. A wonderful, right. obscure right. stuff, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I want all that. Yeah. I want those little baby squid and, you know, all those things. <laughs> Well, right. well, I wish, I wish I had 671 for dinner tonight with the steak we're going to have. Yeah, what are we going to have? What, what, what I picked is, is it's okay. So you'd, you'd <laughs> like that wine. I'd like his steak. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, uh, Cameron. Cameron, thank- I feel like we have a new friend. It's yeah, a great, th- great buddy to have. Thank you, thank you for a lovely story, and uh, we, we we wish you well. We wish you much success in in your business because you deserve it. Oh, thank been, you so much. It's been, been wonderful. So 
talking with you guys both. I, I really enjoyed it. Great. And I'm I'm not kidding when I say come and see me up here and uh we'll cook up some steaks. In fact there's a great place right down the street that just opened up, uh very high end Japanese steakhouse. We'll take you down there. Uh, what's it called? Oh, what is it called? I forget the name of it. It just opened up. Oh, uh, don't worry. Yeah, my so, brain is overwhelmed. I know. Selling steak and wine at the same time just pulls me in different directions. All right. Well, I'm going I'm to hit the stop button. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. California, the Golden State, I guess, got it, got its name originally from the fact that gold was discovered in California in 1849. But these days, it's gold in a different way. Gold in the form of wonderful foods and wines. And our, our next guest wrote a book dedicated to, to both of these yeah, things. Yeah, usually we talk to Janet about cheese, but we she do. tackled this whole Wine Country Table, which is the name of her and, book. And, and introduced us to some fascinating people along yeah, the way. Yeah, people are fun. I mean, of course, it's the chef's dream of California with right, this produce. Right. Okay, well, shall we go? Yes, Janet. The Wine Country Table. Janet Fletcher, we've interviewed before. Uh, she's... Uh, an expert on cheese, uh, on uh, she lives in California and is an expert on the wine country table, which is the topic of her newest book. How many books you've written? So many books, Janet. I've written a lot of books. I think this is number thirty. Oh, geez. I have to count. <laughs> but a lot of them have been collaborations, you know, with other people. And this uh-huh. book was definitely a, a collaboration. Uh, with two fantastic photographers. Oh, the photography is gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. We had one photographer doing the food and and the farms, and another photographer doing all the winery and vineyard shots because that's his expertise. So we got the best out of both of them, and that this is just a gorgeous. I, I don't want to call it a coffee table book because I really want people to take it into the kitchen, but it's it's got that kind of quality of printing and design. It's really beautiful. It it is a coffee table. It's not a book. It's a coffee table. (laughs) It is a coffee table. Yeah, it is. It's pretty heavy. That beautiful thick paper that makes the the finished book uh, heavy. But it gives you an idea just, just how truly magnificent and rich the agrarian economy is in California. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the point, was to really showcase uh, California agriculture from north to south and specifically to focus on how sustainable these farms are these days. Farms and uh, vineyards and wineries, for uh, most of them sustainability is like the starting point of their operations, and it's the first thing they think about when they're making decisions. And that's a big change from, say, 30, 40 years ago. It's really top of mind for our growers uh, here in California. The, sc- the scale of California agriculture is just so incredible. I mean, we, we, I remember somebody from the, from the Almond, Blue Diamond people said that California accounts for something like 80% of the world's crop of almonds. Right. And one of the things you say that astounded me is that California supplies 
50% of the country's requirement for canned tomatoes. <laughs> oh, it's got to be more than that. Well, you, maybe you didn't just didn't want to claim anymore. It's a, it's a, yeah, I'd have to look at that. I'm surprised it's not much higher than that. Yeah, there are quite a few crops that California provides almost uh, the enti- country's entire supply. Uh, things like figs, um, almonds, walnuts, dates. Uh, pistachios. pistachios. Yeah, pistachios for sure. Garlic. Uh, we just have um, so many uh, climates here. You know, we have coastal climates. We have desert. We have uh, mountain. We have um, Mediterranean climate. So there's a, there's a zone here for just about every crop and every grape variety. One, one of the things that I, over the years, have found most astounding is that every, every variety of grape you can imagine grows in California, including the ones that thrive in cooler temperatures. And, and you, th- you think of California, especially the southern half, as being really hot. Oh, no. Yeah. And, and, in fact, there are whole segments of it which are really very cool, at least at certain times of the day and night. That's, that's absolutely true. Certainly our coastal Sonoma County, uh, Mendocino County along the coast, uh, very affected by the fog off of the, off of the ocean. So uh, the grapes are cooled down at night, and it's like natural air conditioning, and so it keep, they keep their acidity. And then uh, but they get plenty of sun during the day, so they, they ripen. Um, but yeah, there, there are... Uh, you know, hotter inland areas where grapes like Cabernet, the heat lovers, uh, do well, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and then in the cooler zones, we grow our Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Riesling, uh, the cool climate varieties. Now, when we were we were out on a tour of Paso, the Paso Robles country, and we 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 met three characters who called themselves the Roan Rangers. <laughs> Right, yeah, that, that area has really specialized in production of Rhone varieties like Viognier and Syrah and Roussan. Right. Uh, Topless Creek, which is one of the wineries that's profiled in my book, is a leader in um, introducing these Rhone varieties, bringing them in from the Rhone, uh, from the Rhone uh, you know, getting them through quarantine and um, planting them. And then admirably, they made these... Um, their, these clones that they brought in, they made them available to other neighbors because yeah. they really wanted to promote the production of Rome-style wines I was just uh, gonna, in that area. I was just going to say that, but bef- before that, apparently the, the Perrin family went all over California looking for a place that would best suit the, the, the growing of their grape portfolio, and they, the Tablas Creek location was the one they selected. That's right. They like the soil. I think there's a lot of limestone in the soil. And they liked that it was far enough from the ocean that uh, it could ripen these grapes, which need a lot of, you know, a lot of warmth, um, but still kind of benefit from some of the cooling impact, the, the maritime impact of the Pacific Ocean. So it just had everything they wanted. It's a beautiful property. Yeah, now we already hit on three areas that, that you talk about in this book. Uh, the climate, the range of the whole state of climate, uh, also, I mean, the, the difference between on the water and, and uh, on the other side. Uh, we've talked about the great vast quantities and qualities and styles of 
produce, agricultural products, and wines in this area, and also something that you do profiles on, the individuals who are involved with this and the vineyards that are involved with this. So that's three huge areas you cover in pretty much detail in this book so far. What else? Yeah, it really, it's a book of stories, really. I and mean, of course, it's a, it's a cookbook, so there are some recipes of my own invention that uh, I think are pretty tasty. Uh, but it's, uh, more than that, it's a book of stories to introduce people to the, to the people who grow our food. You know, we hear this all the time. I want to know where my food comes from. Well, this is a book that tells you where the, the food is coming from. It shows you how asparagus are grown, how they're harvested. You meet a family that for three or four generations has been growing asparagus, and you learn how they are making choices that um, are more sustainable, more um, you know, more responsible uh, choices about how they farm uh, than perhaps their grandparents or great-grandparents did. A lot of these farms that I profiled are multi-generational farms. I was kind of quite surprised, actually, a fifth-generation pear grower. Uh, the growers are multi-generation. Oh, the fig, especially the figs, yeah. Yeah, the avocado. Uh, he's, I think, the grandson of a uh, fig and a uh, fig. Gro- I mean, avocado grower. So they, these are people who have stayed on the farm. They are succeeding, and they are succeeding by focusing on, uh, you know, having a sustainable operation that preserves the land, that nourishes the land, and uh, and nourishes their employees as well. You know, that's I think that's a point that a lot of people don't realize about sustainable practices is that it's not just about how you treat your land. It's not about whether you do or don't spray. It's a much bigger picture of uh, business practices that encompass things like how well you treat your employee. Uh, do you offer benefits? How good are you to your neighbors? Do you try to keep the sound down when you have parties at night? <laughs> um, you know, uh, things like, uh, you know, we had one wine winemaker, Larry Turley of Turley Vineyard, oh, yes. who sends his employees' kids to the state college of their choice. That's if they need help, he will pay for their way to go. That's just something that he does to keep his workplace, his workforce uh, happy and uh, and working hard for him. So sustainability is bigger picture than just um, how you're growing that particular crop or grape. Now, d- does Mr. Turley, is he related to Helen Turley? He, their brother and sister, oh, yes. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, Helen's a well-known uh, consultant, and Larry is a very well-known vintner. Um, famous for his old vine Zinfandels. Right, uh, right. Now, I, that, that brings in another another important aspect of of what's happened in California, which which is a relatively small number of individuals who've turned out to be real groundbreakers. Helen Turley being one of those. Who's the Who's the guy I'm thinking of? Mondavi's another one, yeah. I guess. Well, maybe. we have a whole lot of. Uh, innovative vintners, and I think that was one thing that surprised me as I went up and down the state uh, meeting these vintners and grape growers and uh, spending time with them to learn about what they do and how they do it. They are among the most, entrepreneurial is not quite the right word, they are risk takers and they are all, they're innovative. They're always looking for new solutions to their problems or to their challenges. And these days a lot of these solutions are, are technology um, using technology to help you save water, help you save energy, help you know uh, if you have to spray, when is the perfect time to do it so that you can use as little as possible and do it as infrequently as possible. Um, 
they are just cutting edge in terms of the um, way that they're growing uh, grapes in this in this state. And you know, so, their their community involved too. I mean, that's the, we found this from. Um, visiting vineyards and like the um, Iron Horse. I mean, they're all family and community involved. Uh, the, the Paso Robles uh, people, we found um, three of the uh, vintners the Ron- actually. The Ron Rangers. Yeah, we, didn't it, we just talk about them? We did, but we didn't say that, that they also get together for for something like square dancing lessons once a month. I mean, you know, you, how you picture um, uh, people on vast spreads of land, uh, what's the social uh, community aspect of that? They do that too. Right. Yeah, for sure. I uh, interviewed one winery called Scheid, S-C-H-E-I-D, in Monterey County. They're big uh, grape growers there, and they have their own brand. And they do so much for that uh, Salinas community, which is a fairly low-income community. They've taken, not fairly, it's a low-income community. And Shide has uh, taken some ground that they own that wasn't all that suitable to growing great grapes. And they've turned it into a soccer field um, for the local kids. And I think they're about to do their second one. And they coach soccer, and they, they support the schools. They also have a scholarship uh, program, a writing program, and they award scholarships for, for great writers, uh, just hoping to encourage young people to uh, become better writers. So every winery kind of finds its cause yeah. where, they want, where it wants to contribute to the community. But that's also part of sustainability. It's, it's a part of uh, becoming a certifiably sustainable winery is that you have to demonstrate this uh, commitment to your community, involvement in the community. How did you imagine that people would use this book? I mean, it's, 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 we already decided it's useful as a coffee table. <laughs> it's a big book. But, you know, I, but first more, of all, I hope people will take it in the kitchen and get it dirty and cook from it. No, there's um, more, there's I just more, love about, these recipes. No, there's more about it than that because you, stru- you structured it in a, in a way that makes, makes it approachable from the standpoint of telling your story about the, the people and the crops. How do you think people would use it as a cookbook, for example? Well, it's a it's a very seasonal, seasonally oriented cookbook. Uh, I hope uh, people will. And your recipes reflect the the produce of the region. I mean, is this like walnut and green olive dip, which I've already mentioned to you, uh, with pomegranates and pistachios? That screams California. Well, yes, it does. We grow all those things, but actually that's a dip from the Middle East. I just adapted it uh, a <laughs> bit. You do but it's, that one? it's a Middle Eastern uh, dip, and it's absolutely delicious with a flatbread. I started my recipe development by looking at what we grow, what, I want, what produce I want to showcase, and trying to keep it simple, because when you have such beautiful produce, you don't oh, really yeah. want to cover it up with a lot of fussing. And, no, no, you know, on the rise, you, you have a, a section on olive oil, and that was slow to, to be a major uh, product of California or recognized because of the throes of, like, Spanish, Greek, and Italian. But it is a major competitor for best olive oils in the world. It is, and it's really grown. Um, that industry has grown quite a bit. I think it's something now like 8% of U.S. Uh, consumption is, is coming from California. That is just way up from 
what it was, and it's growing much uh, much faster than that. Yeah, you know, my own uh, olive oil, the extra virgin olive oil is Californian. I won't use anything else. It's absolutely delicious, and it's reasonably priced because what they're doing now in California is growing these olives almost like grapevines. They're keeping the, the trees low and training them on trellises almost like grapevines so that they can machine harvest them because the big cost in olive oil production is the labor uh-huh. and the labor of harvesting and, and pruning. So if you can keep, if you can mechanically harvest and get a quality product, you can put an olive, a great olive oil in the bottle at a much lower price. Now, now so, tell me how, I mean, the current, a lot of these uh, um, places depend on seasonal labor, uh, which brings us to the awful stuff happening with immigration. I mean, how much impact is all this craziness over uh, the xenophobia about immigration going to impact the production of California? Well, this is not my area of expertise, but it's certainly obvious that um, California relies on a lot of manual labor to grow the food that the nation eats and that the world eats. We just have a seasonal spikes in, in, in the need for, for people. And so if we make it harder for immigrants to come here and do that work, I don't know who's going to pick this food. Yeah, well, I don't either, which is why I was asking you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a definite concern, a definite concern. Um, we certainly in California, we value the immigrant workforce. We know that they are doing work that other people will not do. Exactly. And um, I think... You know, the, our, the growers uh, that I profiled in this book and the vintners work really hard to keep their employees happy and safe and comfortable. So I, I, uh, I'm very proud of our California farmers. And are you a native, Janet? I'm not. I'm a native Texan. But oh, I, I knew you know, there was something there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, California is where I've lived for an awfully long time and sure feels like home. It was just such a privilege to have this opportunity to go up and down the state and meet these amazing people who are growing our food and growing the grapes that become um, the fabulous wines that, that we love. They're, they're dedicated. It's a really hard way to make a living, and uh, they, they love what they do, and they want to keep doing it, which is what sustainability is all about. So they know they need to keep their land healthy. They need to keep their, the streams healthy. They are, you know, the farmers in our state are environmentalists at heart, um, because otherwise they don't have an asset to pass on to the next generation. Well, Janet Fletcher, this is a wonderful book. It's called Wine Country Table, subtitled with Recipes that Celebrate California's Sustainable Harvest. And uh, there's so much information in this. And, and hold up, before we sign up, there, there was an institute, an organization of some kind that sponsored your Project? Oh, right. I meant to ask about that. Yes, it's Wine Institute. It's the trade association for the California wine uh, industry. Let, let's, uh, pop, let's, pop in their, let's pop in their website so that people don't have to look anywhere else to, to go find them if they're interested in following the work that this organization is doing. You have that? So, so, so what's, the web, what's the website? Huh, I should know that, but I don't. It's probably wineinstitute.org. That's my guess. Probably. And there's a, a thousand California wineries. You just Google Wine Institute and you will, you will yeah, be exactly. there. 
So we hope you learned something new about the wonderful world of wine in today's program. And, and go out jo- and try some of this stuff. And, and, huh? you'll join it, and you'll join us again, we hope, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye. <laughs>